Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the first AMR Studios episode of this year, of 2023. We have a special interview that Ava did with Professor Nicola Gale on December 2nd of last year. I hope you enjoy it very much. Hi there, dear listeners. Today, I'm very pleased to have here with me in our studio, Nicola Gale from the University of Birmingham, who is uh, actually coming to give a seminar and a visit to the sociology department that is also related to the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Nicola, please, can you introduce yourself to our audience? Yes, of course. My name is Nicola Gale. I'm a professor of health policy and sociology at the University of Birmingham. I sit within our health services management centre, which is in the School of Social Policy. And I'm also um, co-director of a research group, an interdisciplinary research group on antimicrobial resistance, which is called Confronting Antimicrobial Resistance. Um, And that is part of our Institute for Global Innovation. Very interesting. I'm very looking forward to now explore a little bit how how did you get to do the things that you are doing and what your path was from the very early beginnings of your studies to what is it that you're doing now and the reason why you're here at Uppsala University today. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what did interest you when you started your studies? Yes, of course. I started my studies at the University of Warwick and I did an undergraduate degree in politics and sociology. And I became very interested during that time in really the people on the margins of medicine. I was interested in countercultures and subcultures, um, community development and approaches to were related to communities and community understandings and how that contrasted with um, medical understandings of the health and the body. And as a result of that, I did my undergraduate dissertation and then went on to study at master's and, and postgraduate level, looking at complementary and alternative medicines and traditional medicines and indigenous medicines. And I found that a really fascinating concept in the context of the UK, where you have free access to healthcare, modern healthcare free at the point of access through the National Health Service. There was still a statistic to say that at least half of the population pay out of pocket to use alternative medicines. And I was Mm -hmm. just really interested in why people were using these alternative medicines when they, they had access to free healthcare. And particularly, I was interested in the fact that the users of alternatives were usually women and people of color. And therefore, Mm -hmm. it was people who were not well served by the dominant system. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. So because a lot of people correlate, you know, alternative medicines and indigenous medicine with something that doesn't happen here in the places where we are located, like Sweden or the UK. But then your experience says that these kind of medicines are also accessed by people in so-called developed countries. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think the patterns are very different in different parts of the world about who uses alternatives, but there is a significant power element to it. So it's people who are not well served by the dominant system who access alternatives. Um, In a lot of lower middle income countries, it's people in rural areas or people who are um, from quite poor communities. In Western, Northern, higher income countries, it It tends to be women, it tends to be people from black communities or minority ethnic communities who access alternatives. And so, yeah, while there isn't the same relationship with with poverty in Western countries, there is still definitely a relationship with kind of minoritized groups and Mm -hmm. um, groups, yeah, that aren't part of the dominant system, patriarchal system. Did your research uh, focus on understanding what is the source of this separation and how is it that the traditional systems are failing these groups? Lots of people do do work on that. It's not actually where I went with it. So my interest, which I think will will kind of take us more into to how I got into AMR, was that I was interested in different forms of medical work and how people do the job of being a healthcare practitioner. So I became quite interested in how how people practice 
practically accomplish their work, how work actually gets done um, Mm -hmm. in real complex social situations. So looking perhaps at what the gap is between idealized forms of practice, you know, guidelines Mm -hmm. and evidence and looking to see how that plays out in real life interactions. And so I started by looking at complementary therapists. I looked at community health workers, community development workers, and looked at how people who are just outside the conventional medical system are doing doing the work of interacting with real life humans who are experiencing, you know, challenging uh, social or health situations and dealing with the uncertainty of not knowing what their future health will be like. And that issue of uncertainty relates also to principles of risk. And that was how I moved into what I is my kind of main theoretical interest, which is risk work. So looking at how systems that operate around attempting to minimize risk, particularly risk to human health. So particularly looking at epidemiological evidence on the risk to certain populations or certain groups within a population and looking to see how that kind of population level knowledge is translated by real practitioners Mm -hmm. who are dealing with real patients in individual situations. And at the heart of that is an irreconcilable tension between population level knowledge that is by its very nature disembedded, pulled out from real individual context in order to be able to look at overarching statistics across a group and be able to you know look at what works and what doesn't work in comparisons between different interventions and then when that knowledge is then re-embedded back into social contexts and individual lives it is it's not a straightforward process and Mm -hmm. there is a paradox essentially that we are trying to use epidemiological knowledge to make individual level decisions. And there are a lot of good reasons to do that, but it isn't an unproblematic process from the perspective of, of a, a practitioner who's trying both to follow the evidence, comply with the interventions in their own organizations and build a relationship with their patients and care for those patients. Yeah, I I can relate to what you're saying because here we often talk about how difficult it is that, you know, sometimes doctors or healthcare professionals get judged for the decisions they take in a one-to-one situation with a patient that needs help, that there is a need for care there versus the bigger data set that says, oh, you should not be given the antibiotic because in this particular uh, situation. So I I can understand how it is so important to see what are the drivers of these relationships one-to-one and how these healthcare workers apply the guidelines that are based more on population level situation, right? That just the individual. So I guess that this is what brought you to AMR because it, AMR, it's... Um, a problem, a situation where we are trying to do the best we can for the better good of everybody. And we know that AMR is a global problem, so it's not a problem that can be just studied and identified in local communities. It's something that can be spread throughout, but it's also something that affects the individual, right? So I guess you having had that background working on very similar questions, but maybe in another setting that brought you to AMR and you saw that there could be a need for this kind of understandings within AMR? Exactly. Yeah. So my interest in this largely started around, it was in public health, but primarily around the management of long-term conditions. So looking at things like prevention and management of um, cardiovascular disease, diabetes and, and other long-term conditions and then yes I then saw that that way of thinking with the risk work approach that I've developed with my colleague um, Patrick Brown at the University of Amsterdam we then started applying that work in different contexts so we looked at mental health we have colleagues who look at it in the context of social work and the management of risk around families um, and then I started being involved with some work on respiratory medicine 
and looking at the use of antibiotics for people with severe respiratory um, conditions such as chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder. And we started to look at the ways in which people were managing their use of antibiotics in that context. And it was through that that I came into contact with Willem van Sheik, who's the co-director of our research group, um, CARE. And it yeah, from that space, started to apply the theory of risk work to questions of antimicrobial resistance. And particularly, what's interesting is that there is this really clear trade-off of risks in antimicrobial mm-hmm. resistance in a way that isn't quite the same in, in some others, why it makes it interesting both empirically, but also theoretically interesting to look at this area, because you've got the risk of infection and death or sepsis and then on the other hand you've got this risk of resistance and the kind of long-term impact on human health and also animal health as well and that trade-off of risks that people are managing with different sorts of evidence that they're drawing on for the management of those risks and all of that coalescing around an individual patient Mm -hmm. who perhaps you know has an infection but may also have a a range of other conditions as well because they may have multimorbidity they may be in hospital for something else and they're getting an infection so actually the the kind of complexity of the decision making process um do I prescribe or do I not prescribe? When do I prescribe? When do I start? When do I stop? How do I communicate with my patient about the way in which I want to manage this? How do I communicate with their families, mm-hmm. you know, particularly in, in, you know, intensive care or with children or people who are otherwise vulnerable? You've got a whole set of other social interactions that are shaping the way that your decision making happens. And equally for a clinician, you know, antibiotics and antimicrobial resistance is important, but it is by no means the only thing that they're worried about. And I think one of the really interesting things about social science is that you're excited about a particular topic, but you always see it in context. And that's what you bring, I think, as a social scientist to these debates is people have all sorts of specialist knowledge around AMR. And a lot of my colleagues at Birmingham have really, you know, exciting, interesting research projects. But the social scientist kind of says, okay. And then when you take that specialist knowledge and you put it in a real life complex situation, actually, it's just not that simple. Mm -hmm. And one of my real interests at the moment is exploring and, and critiquing this trope or this idea of the irrational prescriber, Mm -hmm. which is very dominant in the field of AMR, that Mm -hmm. people prescribe antibiotics irrationally. And I think from a social science perspective that it's a a really flawed concept. Yeah, I completely agree with you because I do not believe that a healthcare professional that has its best interest at heart, you know, for their patients, that there's not going to be a reason why they would be prescribing an antibiotic, even though when maybe the biology behind it or the science, natural science behind it, we say, do not prescribe it here. There has to be more there. There has to be reason for it, right? Absolutely. And that is why, and that is essentially what we try to do with risk work theory. So it looks at how you take the, these ideas and the different forms of knowledge that people have about risk. And bear in mind that a practitioner draws on epidemiological or microbiological or other medical forms of knowledge but they also draw on a whole other set of knowledge as well they draw on their experiential knowledge they draw on their tacit knowledge they draw on their embodied knowledge you know they can sit in a room with someone and think this person is really ill Mm -hmm. and they may not have this you know the statistics or the test to prove it but having seen thousands and thousands of patients they have an instinctive sense Mm -hmm. of what's wrong in with the person in the room and they draw on all those different forms of knowledge while making decisions So we're interested in how practitioners actually amidst all that uncertainty about an individual patient, how they actually get the job done, how they actually move from uncertainty to enough certainty or enough coherence in their thinking that they can act and trying to kind of show that that is a really complex process and is just certainly cannot be reduced to rationality and irrationality. Mm-hmm. And a really important dimension of it as well is the time dimension. 
our evidence is always by its very nature based on the past it's based yes. on mm -hmm. past data mm -hmm. and yet in that interaction with the patient what the patient is worried about is their uncertain future mm -hmm. what will happen to them if they do or don't get prescribed a particular drug and so that idea that there's a sort of simplistic relationship between evidence and practice and that we should always follow evidence-based practice actually does not take into account that time dimension mm -hmm. and that is perhaps not something that's very visible or very conscious in that moment of that clinical encounter but I think is really important for understanding the ways in which people do make decisions. That's 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 very interesting I can see totally the point that you know we are basing the decisions, especially the medical decisions, epidemiology, microbiology, or based on the data that we have. And we try to use that data to the best of our abilities to make predictions of what will happen if we do X, Y, and Z. But for the patient, what they really care about is what will happen to me, right? Like that's, I think it's, um, I, I come from a very medical background and biology, completely natural sciences. And when I started learning about AMR, I realized that Without the human component, without the social component, without understanding why we do what we do, how we do what we do, we are never really gonna find what we call wanna call sustainable solutions or a way to manage resistance. Because resistance really wasn't a problem until we started using antibiotics. And that's really what makes it a problem is that people cannot get treated using these drugs that are life-saving, right? So we are at the center of the issue. And not just the issue, it's at the center of understanding how all these things relate to each other and how the actions that we take end up having an effect on how bacteria cannot be killed by antibiotics any longer. So I think the work that you are doing and other sociologists and other social scientists are doing, it's really important. One of the reasons of this podcast is to get the people in the natural sciences to understand you know, the work that is done to understand how we use antibiotics, how we relate to the patients, how we treat is really, really important. So I'm really happy that you're here talking to us today. Um, for those people that don't know so much about sociological work, can you tell us a little bit about your process? How do you do this research? And how do you get the data that you want to analyze? And what do you do with it? That's a good question. We use a variety of methods in social science. And actually, one of the... Um, misconceptions, I think, it, it, uh, amongst my medical research and health research colleagues is that social science is, is about qualitative research, about talking to people and words and analyzing words. And certainly that is a really important part of a lot of social science research, but actually social scientists use a range of methods. So they do desk-based and theoretical research, they do quantitative social science and also qualitative social science as well. Personally, I tend to use mixed methods because I think that often brings a range of different perspectives onto work. And my, my sort of specialism is around qualitative research. And in practice, that means going out and talking to the people I'm interested in, so the people who are doing the risk work, who are actually out there at the front line managing their workloads and so on and asking them a set of questions to try and unpick why they make the decisions that they make and how they manage the inherent tensions in their work between population level and individual level and I guess the theoretical element of that informs the sorts of questions that I ask so because I've done a range of different projects looking at how risk is managed by individual workers that helps orientate me to certain sorts of questions to ask people because I don't know exactly how that issue will manifest but I know that there is likely to be an issue in a particular area and so mm. I use the theory to help me think about the questions to ask and then to interpret the answers that I get. But also, and importantly, I then use the data to help refine the theory so that yeah. the next time mm -hmm. I do a study, I've then got a, a better understanding of what I'm doing. And it becomes an iterative process. Mm -hmm. And I think when I work, and I do a lot of work 
in interdisciplinary groups. I think it's the use of theory that I find medical and bioscientists tend to find most difficult to understand. It's the bit that doesn't kind of sit naturally with their their way of thinking. And in some senses, I I don't understand that because natural scientists use models too yeah. <laughs> and essentially it's a model but it's it's a it's a model of the social world yeah and so we yeah we use those models that we have to help inform um, the decision making i think the other important distinction to make in qualitative research is between descriptive qualitative research and interpretive. So just as with statistical analysis, you do, you know, statistical mm -hmm. descriptions yeah. and then you would analyze and, you know, you might do regression analysis or you might do something else that is a kind of helps to explain. Yeah. We do exactly the same with qualitative research. So we, we look at the data and we describe it. We say, mm -hmm. this is what people have said. But then we do a second level of analysis. And that second level of analysis is the interpretation of it using theory or generating theory if it's an area where there isn't a strong theoretical tradition. And we use that to help understand not only what is happening in this particular case, but how this case relates to other Mm -hmm. similar sorts of social situations as well. So whereas quite often my colleagues in health research will do one type of research, they'll do heart disease or they'll do respiratory disease or they'll do diabetes mm -hmm. or they'll do surgery. I don't associate my work with one particular disease type. So I guess every time that you immerse yourself in a new area so to speak right you were first working with uh, long-term conditions and then you started working in AMR maybe the data and the understandings you get of how people take on risks and assess risks and works with risk within AMR will in turn also give you insights maybe to explain how people understand risk in other diseases right so in a sense it's not that you're doing research just for and within AMR is that whatever you learn from that case study which would be AMR can also be applied to other places so on and so forth so you I guess you have a fluidity within your relationship with the areas where you do research is that correct that's exactly right yeah I'm very happy that you mentioned that you work very deeply interdisciplinary and I wanted to ask you about your work as co-director on the research group on confronting antimicrobial resistance at the Institute for Global Innovation at Birmingham University. Because when I first came across this, I thought, oh, we have some parallels there of like the work that we do here at the Uppsala Antibiotic Center and your work there. Can you tell us a little bit more about how this came about and what is it that you guys are doing in this research group? I think that's a really good question. I think interdisciplinary research is by its very nature challenging. Mm -hmm. I think we speak different languages, literally speak different languages around the kinds of concepts, the kind of ideas, the kinds of models, the kind of level at which we're talking about issues. And so the purpose of the Institute for Global Innovation at Birmingham is to bring together people who have not previously worked together, people from different disciplines who want to address big global challenges. So things that are wicked problems, things that are actually by their very nature incredibly hard to solve because if they were easy, we would have solved them already. <laughs> So the idea is that by bringing together people who might not naturally work together, that you can start new sorts of conversations. Mm -hmm. And so the Institute runs a number of different themes or groups, things on you know, international crime or gender inequality, that, you know, big issues, and AMR is one of them. And the group was initially run by my colleague, Willem van Sheik, who is a microbiologist. He's the director of our Institute for um, Infection and Microbiology. And he is a microbiologist and has worked and has a really kind of thriving research group at Birmingham around this area and he was really interested in reaching out across the university and the group has been running for a while and I got involved more formally about a year ago when they really recognized that they, they wanted some strong leadership arts humanities and social science mm -hmm. department as well because the group had some people 
including me from across the, the university, but we really wanted to kind of bring together um, the social sciences, the humanities, legal scholarship into you know, chemistry, mathematics, biosciences and medicine and start to develop new sorts of conversations. And that is essentially what the research group does. Um, but it is really hard. And I think we try to facilitate different sorts of conversations. We provide financial support to do pilot projects and to build connections with external stakeholders and try and work to ask new sorts of questions or to ask the same question, but from different perspectives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that that feels like it's the natural way to kind of resolve these kind of things. That's also why we created our center, which we call ourselves more a multidisciplinary center. Um, from being multidisciplinary, we hope that these interdisciplinary connections and projects will come about kind of naturally without having to say, okay, here's a social scientist, here's a, med a medical doctor, come and work together. It's kind of, we want them to do that kind of work because it's a natural way to move forward in the research as well. How has it worked in practice for you? Have you had some sort of tensions that you have seen, understood between the people, the direction they want to take their science, their vision of how they can taper on each other's experiences and backgrounds to create something new? Yeah, I mean, I think there are, there are tensions. There are also successes as well. I think your your point about the difference between multidisciplinarity and interdisciplinarity, I think is a really, really important one. And I think what the Institute for Global Innovation does at, at Birmingham is it, it's really It's essentially a thought experiment, which is actually what if you do try and force yeah. people to be <laughs> interdisciplinary? So, yes, there's an idea that if you bring people together, they will naturally collaborate. But I think there is also a question about whether that's enough mm -hmm. and whether actually bringing people together and kind of saying, you've really got to find ways of working together and we will provide you with financial support for doing that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we're trying to do things, but it's a very slow process. And I think in my experience, there are two things that bring people together around interdisciplinary working most effectively. One of them is method because method kind of takes out the, the disciplinary sort of sting of bringing people together from different disciplines because a lot of the disciplinary stuff is conceptual. It's about often the use of jargon that is mm -hmm. not familiar to other other disciplines and can sometimes be really tricky. But methods somehow bring people together because methods are about data yeah. and people collect data and then they analyze it and they find findings. And I think sometimes bringing methodology as your, your sort of point of understanding mm -hmm. each other is a really good place to start. Yes, eventually you want to understand the other stuff too, but it's a really good starting point. I think the second thing that brings people together is thinking about the impact, about what you actually want to change in mm -hmm. the end. We had a really interesting conversation with some colleagues the other day about uh, managing infections in hospitals. And, you know, in the end, everyone around the table wanted to manage infections better. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, coming at every level from, you know, the cellular level through to the interactional, you know, human level and trying to understand that, you don't fix it by just doing it at one end or the other. You fix it through every different level, coming together and working different um, in different ways. So yeah, so the impact or the, the practice outcomes and implications and methodology, yeah, for me at least, are the places I like at least like to start those conversations. That is very useful, actually, coming from someone that has experience of bringing these people together, like put it in a bag, shake them, and yeah, you put a bit of method, you put a bit of, let's all work with for this goal, and then let's see what comes out of that. I completely agree with you that I don't think one way is inherently better than the other. There are different approaches for different people. It might work in different ways. Some people want to have the freedom of just see how things work and see what comes up. Other people are, I want to be driven by this challenge and I want to do it, right? So I think it really depends the kind of cohort of people that are working together as well. And it's a lovely example that you have managed to get these people and really move forward on these projects. You have very extended experience with different disciplines and moving across different problems, health problems and uh, yeah, issues that way. I want to ask you, what do you think is needed? What would you like to see 
more of in the areas that you have experience with, that you have worked with, or even areas that you might have learned through your interdisciplinary work with other people? What do you think we need more of? Things that I think we need more of, at least from a social science perspective, is more comparative work. I think understanding how the same problems are dealt with in different countries and different cultures and different environments is really helpful. I'm currently doing a project with my colleague Matthew McKenna looking at the ways in which AMR policies are constructed in Sweden, the Netherlands and the UK. And we're hoping to bring in some colleagues from Spain as well. Mm. And that, although we are in the middle of the project, so the data is just beginning to come in and we haven't fully analysed it yet, we're already starting to see some really interesting comparisons between the way that people, for instance, relate to guidance, national guidance, mm-hmm. and how that type of knowledge is constructed at the front line by practitioners and how they make use of it and how they convey that knowledge to, for instance, their trainees or their junior colleagues and how they manage that knowledge with their patients. You know, do they appeal to guidelines and making justifications, for instance, about not prescribing or do they use guidelines in different sorts of ways? So that that's really interesting. And I think you always learn a lot from comparative research, from a social science perspective at least, because I think if you're stuck in one system, you almost can't see, there's an expression in English, you can't see the wood for the trees, mm-hmm. in that you see difference, but you don't see what brings it together and what, what yeah. holds it together. And But sometimes if you look at how another system or another country does it, you suddenly realize that actually everyone does it the same in your country. There's variation within it, but actually there's a huge similarity as well. Mm -hmm. And so you get that insight and that reflexive process of realizing what is shaping the social norms or the professional norms within a particular environment. So I think comparative research is a real way forward. We've talked about interdisciplinarity, so I won't um, (laughs) rehash that argument, but I do think it's important. I think within the world of social scientists who are doing work in in the medical fields, I think there's a real balance to be struck between doing applied work and doing critical theoretical work. And in my career, I've always tried to straddle the two because they don't always sit that neatly together because some of the critical work is kind of quite extreme in the sense that it, you know, questions the nature of biomedical knowledge for instance and when you're working with bioscientists that's that's quite a hard message to to share and it's not impossible and actually I think there is a lot of potentially productive and useful work that can happen but sometimes if you're actually trying to fix a problem and you've got a concrete problem you almost need to kind of bracket off those bigger theoretical questions to focus your attention on the micro sociology, the sort of one-to-one interactions or the what we call meso level, which is your sort of middle level, your organizational level mm-hmm. sociology and kind of leave your macro questions, your sort of big societal questions to one side and just concentrate on how can you make something better within an organization uh-huh. or for an individual. <laughs> but I think that for social scientists, getting that balance between what the more applied work and the critical work and being able to do both is is potentially a a really valuable thing to do. And I guess my solution to that in my own career has been that I work, most of my research projects are collaborative research projects with with clinical scientists and other public health people, epidemiologists, economists, and so on, psychologists sometimes as well. And so I I do that work and I will write a paper that relates to the particular research question, but I will also then reanalyze the data from a more critical perspective and publish perhaps in a different journal, in a social Mm. science journal. So I tend to publish across the sort of clinical research field and then also the kind of social science side as well. Yeah, that's very interesting. We didn't go into this topic because we could talk about hours about 
how do you make it so your research and your answers get to the people you want them to to use them right rather when you are working on more applied and more practice level the theoretical part and then i understand perfectly that you say okay maybe the same kind of data the same kind of um, input that you get in your research you can work with it in a different way and it can give you results and answers that can be used by different cohorts of people, be it the medical doctors in one end or being other sociologists working with other uh, questions as well. So that's a very nice point that you brought up that, you know, how you analyze your data and to whom are you targeting that can be a difference there. Yeah, that's very cool. Great, Nicola. This has been really lovely. Uh, we're sadly coming to the end of our interview, so I wanted to open up the uh, sound stage for you if there's anything else that you would like to bring to our audience. I think my only message would be that talk to a friendly sociologist in your university. You know, we're a nice bunch and we you are passionate about people and society and trying to improve systems and organizations. And I think if your work relates to this and you're interested in in trying to change practice you know practice is delivered by people and people are human and they socialize with other humans and when they're interacting with patients it is a social encounter and when you're teaching your students that is a social encounter so actually a lot of the way in which we get change ultimately is filtered through human beings interacting with one another and that's what sociology is about That's lovely. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I I grown to love the social work that you all guys are doing. And I feel like a lot of people out there listening to us also with this interview have seen the value and how important it is. So thank you so much for being with us, Nicola, and look forward to see what you do with your research in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back from this interview. I particularly really, really enjoyed talking to Professor Gail. And I wonder, Jenny, what is uh, your impression of this very social interview? Yeah, I really loved it too. And I have to say, since we're both natural scientists, I'm going to kind of come at this from the natural science perspective. If you're a natural scientist who's looking to understand more about the social scientists, I think this is the interview for you. And I hope a lot of the people listening agree there. It was great to hear like how she got into her career, her perspectives, but also this kind of, she brought up some really great comparisons between, for example, quantitative and qualitative research. Not that she, I mean, she seems to do both, but it's more also this, you know, really explaining how they're both sciences mm-hmm. and the value of them as well. And also kind of contextualizing a lot of things. Like I remember specifically she brought up, you know, if you teach, that's a part of social sciences. There's a lot of social aspects in many of our careers that we probably don't value as such. Mm -hmm. And I really just loved hearing her kind of put everything in a frame. A few things in particular that stuck out to me that I still remember is this concept of the irrational prescriber. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah, we've talked about this before, this concept of rational use of antibiotics or like correct use of antibiotics. I mean... It's too easy to sit from outside and say that was the wrong use or that was incorrect, that was irrational, but you're not in that situation. You don't know why that decision was made. There probably aren't people who are just, oh, I'm just going to throw antibiotics at the problem. I mean, it's not likely that that's what's going on when we see these kinds of numbers. It comes down to seeing why are they making these decisions? What What's behind it? Yeah, I thought it was a really nice perspective to kind of throw in. Yeah, I I really agree with you on this because... Well, I think we probably have talked about it in some previous episode about that we don't really think anybody uses antibiotics when they really think they shouldn't be using them. There is a reason why a doctor or prescriber decides to give a patient an antibiotic. And I don't think we can really get to know why that is unless you are using this sociological perspective on how do frontline workers, healthcare workers, are taking on these decisions? What is it that they're drawing on? They're, of course, policy documents and guidelines, but their experiences, Mm. as Nicola was saying, are also central part. And how do you quantify and value those experiences is something that is hard to do, right? And it's like a subjective position. But I don't believe that any practitioner it was just going to say oh there's just use antibiotics without a reason behind it or at least that's what I would hope that the situation is 
I have to say that actually Nicola is also part uh, of uh, being an opponent for one of the PhD students at the center. And this student, she's actually researching in Sweden health policy documents. How is this vision of irrational prescribing being taken on, on these policy documents and analyzing it from a sociological perspective. So I think the work and the background and experience of Professor Gale is very important for this topic. Yeah, and I think we've kind of talked about this a little bit before as like the concept of the difficulty, I mean, as neither of us being clinicians, but considering this difficulty of a clinician or a prescriber balancing the collective good and the good for their patient, because what they're really prioritizing is the good of their patient. Of course, that's their job. That's their responsibility. But I liked also this concept of, you know, these guidelines are all based on the past, on data that we've already collected in the situation as it was then, which is definitely relevant. I mean, there's absolutely value to that. I'm not saying it's not. But I like this framing it of, you know, the patient is concerned about their future, about what's going to happen next. Well, I don't think there's these things can definitely fit together. Of course, it's it's worth acknowledging this difference mm -hmm. in what's important for the different individuals. Definitely. In a previous interview, I think it was with Lyndon Moody from the UAC, I remember discussing the difficulty of publishing interdisciplinary work. You know, where should you publish? Should it be in an interdisciplinary journal? And are you then reaching the target audiences that you're hoping for, for example? So I liked that Professor Gale was talking about how she publishes data she's collected kind of at the same time. If I understood right, she analyzes it from like a clinical perspective and then publishes it in more clinical. And she can also analyze it from like the social perspective and publish it in a social journal. And while I hope that there's still a maintained aspect of interdisciplinary research in it, I like this idea of still being able to apply this concept and still publish in these high quality journals that are maybe reaching more people and maybe a little bit more reputable so that this research is valued properly, you know? Yeah, where does the interdisciplinary published science go to? That's like, you are yeah. putting it there just because you have to publish it, but who is actually reading? Because as we know, you want people to be able to either apply your investigations, your results, or build further research on those. And are you actually getting it to the right people? Yeah, and from a more kind of selfish but realistic perspective, sometimes you have to publish in these really high-impact journals to be able to get funding in the future. So if you're doing great interdisciplinary work, maybe not publishing in the most well-known journals for your background field, maybe you're not getting that kind of funding, which would be terrible because you can't continue your interdisciplinary work. It's, it's a bit of a negative spiral there. Yeah, I'm hoping that's something that can be applied in more cases, and at least I'm happy that it works for her, from what I can hear. But overall, I I thought it was, like many, a great interview. And as you said, I think there is a value particularly for natural scientists to listen to these social scientists and their synergies that might be more than maybe one could expect. And it was nice to see the perspective of someone that was brought up in a background purely social sciences and decided to take her career into more applied work, working with different kind of professionals and, and her reflections on what things work and what it might be the way to go. And it's great that they are actually setting up this bigger research group, bringing different people together and see where the work moves forward. Yeah, definitely. I, I hope it continues well for her. But with that, I think we should move on to the news. Yes, let's do that. We have two pretty interesting research articles this time to, to talk about. See you there. So for our first journal article this month, we have a publication in Nature Microbiology called Microbiota and Diet-Derived Fungal Xenocidarophores Promote Salmonella Gastrointestinal Colonization, which was published in the December volume. This was a very interesting article to me because it's something that I've never actually heard the phrase of before. I've never heard the phrase microbiota before, even though... When I had, I was like, obviously this exists and is probably important, but I hadn't heard of it before. <laughs> yeah, that is actually one of the reasons why I thought it might be an interesting thing to bring up to our audiences is because we also, as we say in the AMR studio, we should not only be talking about bacteria. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, we still are talking about bacteria here in a way. I mean, we're talking about salmonella infections, but it's with this background of the fungal microbiota in mammal intestinal tracts. So they're looking at Salmonella enterica typhimurium which is bacteria that can colonize the gut. 
And one problem in infections for the bacteria is a lack of iron. And one of the ways that bacteria take care of this problem is by producing these things called siderophores, which are basically secreted, capture iron, and then there are receptors in the bacteria that can take up the iron again. So it's a bit like they go fishing for iron. <laughs> kind of, yeah. But you can't really reel it back in. It just kind of has to happen. Yeah. But they found something interesting here, which is that there are receptors in salmonella for fungal siderophores. So the fungi can have this as well, but it's all about what receptors you have, basically, what are functional. So salmonella have some siderophores that they themselves produce, but they also have these other receptors. So what they did in this paper was basically look to see how these salmonella are able to use these other receptors, aside from the ones they are for siderophores they already produce. So one thing that they did was basically make receptors for their innate, like the stuff that's produced by the salmonella for those siderophores and make them non-functional. So they just had the functioning receptors for the fungal siderophores. And then they wanted to see if they could use these to be able to grow when there's basically no free iron available, when they have to have functioning siderophore receptors. And this did work. They were able to use them. They also saw when these bacteria were grown with fungi that produce these kinds of siderophores, that they were also able to grow then with those. One thing that they also saw is in mice, when they're kind of testing this colonization of salmonella, if they're able to grow or not, because they're in the gut is one of these places where there's a big limitation of iron, altering the diet can change the gut microbiota, meaning that the fungi present in the gut will actually change. And they could also see that not just changing the diet changes which fungi are present, but also the bacteria could actually pick up siderophores, fungal siderophores, from the diet itself. So basically, you know, food is not sterile. There's obviously things in the food as well. And even these siderophores could be used by the salmonella to promote growth. So basically what they saw is that somehow maybe these species of fungi and salmonella have been evolving together. So for situations where the iron is really, really limited, then salmonella can not only use their own siderophores, but also can use siderophores that are present in, in this case, the gut lumen, because that's the environment they're studying. So that kind of shows that there is some sort of co-evolution between these species that are able to kind of feed on each other in, in a sense, right? Yeah, I'm not sure how much it's co-evolution. I mean, they see this in bacteria as well. So different bacterial species can actually use each other's hydrophores. It's kind of taking advantage of your neighbors mm -hmm. because the other ones, of course, aren't benefiting anything from it, but they're not really picking up that hydrophore anyways. So who knows? But the interesting thing is that this also seems to have been lost. So there's a few different types of salmonella. There's, you know, salmonella typhimeria, which causes, you know, if you think of the salmonella and eggs thing in Sweden is what I'm thinking recently. Mm -hmm. But there's also typhoid, salmonella typhi. These ones that cause these infections that aren't based in the intestinal tract, they have lost the function of these receptors. So basically the DNA coding for these receptors has had too many mutations accumulated. They're not functional anymore. They're not produced in a functional state. But in Salmonella typhimerium, which does colonize the gut, it is still functional. So there's kind of some evidence from that that this is also important for the Salmonella, that it's still there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's pretty interesting also. One of the things that kind of stuck out to me, it's also that it's not only cool to, you know, see what relationship there are between all the different species that form our microbiota, which is, you know, the bacteria the fungi, the archaea as well that are present there. And it's nice to see how that ecosystem kind of works. But it's also important that if the infectious bacteria that you are using in your model system with these mice in particular might work differently depending on the availability of, in this case, these siderophores in the in the lumen. And they have shown that by using different feeds, different food given to the mice, you can also see the different presence of fungi and therefore the siderophores that maybe studies that are using bacteria to study infection might also be affected by the kind of food that these mice 
are being given, right? So they make a point that perhaps in these kind of studies, it would be interesting for the researchers to really specify what kind of food they're giving these mice. But obviously, it's very early on, uh, as they're presenting, there is not a lot of data on the presence of siderophores in the gut lumen, in potential feeds. So it's it's kind of like a, an area to explore where you could maybe have been seen effects that you think is because of the different bacteria that you're using in your system, and it might actually be maybe somehow affected by the diet that you are using. Although within a specific experiment, one will expect that, you know, the feed is kept consistent in order to have as little yeah. um, source of errors as possible. If you're trying to reproduce something or mm-hmm. use a specific method and it's not working, I mean, this kind of thing could, of course, be important is seeing, are you using the same feed? Does it have the same composition and whatnot? Yeah. I also really liked just this. It sounds kind of simple in a way, but I really liked that they grew salmonella and different fungal species together yeah it's this kind of thing we, we don't tend to kind of cross these boundaries a lot i feel like mm-hmm. and i really enjoyed that they kind of went out and did that and they did a couple of different species and they saw that there's definitely an effect there on the presence or absence of these fungal species which is really cool but yeah i thought this was a really interesting article it's a bit of a wake-up call for me about the importance of not just fungal infections but the fungal microbiota i hadn't hadn't thought about that before this article Sadly, it's not open access, but you can access at least the abstract in case you want to read it. And if you have a colleague or you yourself work in an institution that have access to the Nature repository, then you are able to access the full article on the link on the show notes. So Ava, can you tell us a little bit about our other article for this month? Yes, I'm pretty excited to bring up this article because I think it's not only a very well-written and interesting and relevant article for the times we're living in today, but I think it's an article that everyone should be outreaching about and should be getting to as many people as possible because I think it can have huge implications. And we're talking about the article published in the Lancet Global Health 2022 Health Policy by Esmita Charani and colleagues titled The Use of Imagery in Global Health, an Analysis of Infectious Disease Documents and a Framework to Guide Practice. I think the title is pretty self-explanatory. But of course, we're going to yeah. go a little bit more in depth on what is it that they did, why did they did what they did, <laughs> and what are the conclusions of it, and why do we think it's so important? Oh, personally, I think it's really important. So in this article, I really like that the authors come from a personal point of view, which I think it gives the research and this article a very nice storytelling perspective, which is these people are forefront workers in low- and middle-income countries that realize perhaps the imagery that we are using in global health policy documents and publications might be perpetuating an unconscious bias of how we see low- and middle-income countries in high-income countries. So what they wanted to see is if we do an exhausting analysis of the images used across different policy documents, from different institutions that are headquartered in high-income countries, can we see a properly ethical use of these images or are there any shortcomings? And if there are shortcomings, Mm -hmm. where are those based on? And can we actually build a framework that can help to properly represent the situation in low- and middle-income countries in a way that it doesn't really as they put it, incites pity instead of empathy, turns out to be demeaning instead of empowering for the individuals represented. And it doesn't end up just being a commercial standpoint on the global health and it actually represents the situation and trying to get to the point where we want, which is a higher global equity in health and well-being, right? That's that's the mm-hmm. kind of background on it. So what they did was to gather a set of documents on both vaccination and antimicrobial resistance in global health, published between 2015 and 2022, in English containing at least one image. Doing that background search on all these documents, they were able to find 118 reports containing a total of 1,115 images from 14 different global health actors. And by global health actors, what they mean is institutions, organizations that are working, you know, with a more global 
out view on, on the policy and the publications and the documents that are represented and that are headquartered in high-income countries. And one thing that I also thought it was very well selected is that all these documents are actually uh, written and published with the general public as the main audience, which I think is important because what they're trying to see here, I mean, and we do know that images really help us kind of get an idea of the world we're living in. In high-income countries, a lot of the people, the only contact and the only information that they're going to get from these low- and middle-income countries is what they read, they see on images, they see on videos. So the way that you're using images is incredibly important to has the opportunity to really create the proper representation that these places and these people need, you know, like all of us. Yeah. So... What they went about was to first create a method to analyze these images. And the analysis of the images was built on four main themes to assess if, you know, they were properly used. One is to check if the images are relevant, which means, you know, are we using the images in the right part of the report? Is the images that we're using really giving any additional information to what is it that you are reading in the, in the publication? What are they trying to illustrate? Is it reasonable that these images is used in this context or not? All things on these topics. They're also looking into the integrity. That means, is this image actually aligning with principles of respect and dignity for the people that is showing? Can we uh, see that there is the privacy of the person being taken in account? Or even if the images are staged or manipulated in any way that can shape a different narrative, you know, that can actually have a big impact as well. They also look into uh, the theme of consent, which is really important. Can we actually see some way or another that these images have been taken and used with the consent by the people represented in them. And that can be by, you know, contextualizing the image with an image caption. It could be by the demeanor that the people have in these images. This cannot show if there had been any consent to having that image taken and therefore after being used. Or for example, if for example, children are alone and not with a guardian, you can pretty much assume that, you know, the kid wasn't able to give consent for that image because they are probably not understanding what is what is happening around them in that particular situation. And the last thing that they are analyzing is representation, which is, does this image actually represent the reality of the place where it was taken, of the thing that is trying to represent, and also if there is any imbalance in the demographic of the people represented. So with these four themes of relevance, integrity, consent, and representation, they go into these images and they check if the majority or how much percentage is following these kind of different criteria or themes that should kind of be taken in account when an image is being used. By looking into those four themes, what they could see is that there is a variety of results in the use of these images in these documents. But I really like this article because they do point out both good examples and bad examples for those particular themes that we talked about that can later be used in order to illustrate how is the most ethical way to use these images. So I really like the examples of for example, if the people in the image are actually looking into the camera, it implies consent. Also, when there is a well-used caption for the photo that puts the image into context and it gives a background story, which it also adds a lot to the storytelling and to you know, bring out the empathy and the information and the reality of these people into the document and the People that are going to read the document can read the personal stories behind it. That was really beautiful. Of course, there are a lot of moments where images are used to represent how harsh the situations are in certain instances. But there is a difference between using an image that is just jarring and where people obviously are in discomfort versus using an image that is depicting a hard situation, like it could be a mother holding a picture of their dead kid. But 
when you use a picture of a mother holding the picture of the dead kid that is being taken the photo because she wants to share the story the, of that very hard moment in her life and what happened, there's a difference compared to using just an image of a kid that is half sick in a hospital bed alone. So these are the kind of comparisons and the kind of analysis they are doing throughout all these images in, in these documents. And I think the paper does a very good job of illustrating all this with the images and with the different parts of what they have found throughout this document. I think they also brought a couple examples that were very kind of eye-opening to me because they, they really kind of pointed out this difference, you know, in many high-income countries, we have restrictions on how you can use photographs of people. We sign consent forms if we go to an event so that our photograph will be used. That is not applied in places where there maybe aren't the same laws, but we should still provide people the same respect and dignity. And I think that was kind of reminding me, you know, you can't go anywhere here without having, you can't take any photos without having consent forms filled out. And I mean, just for me, for example, my daughter's preschool has that kind of consent form that you can opt out of and whatnot. I also really like that they brought up not just purely critical stances, but also, like you said, brought some nice focus on photos that really conveyed a strong message with more appropriate consideration for the individual being photographed, especially some of these where they said we're able to show, you know, well, they're, they're smiling for the photograph. There's a family there. There can still be some somewhat difficult situations portrayed, but they're done in a way where you could tell that the participants are involved mm-hmm. and they're contextualized, for example, through a good caption. I, I definitely respect the use of captions a lot more after reading this, mm-hmm. how well you can use them to really show and give the individual in the photograph more more respect, uh, show consent. And more agency. Yeah. It's agency and it's empowering the, the stories that you are using as examples and part of this kind of literature and reports, right? So yeah. the use of context is really, really important. You cannot understate how important context is. And in this particular case, you want to be able to you know, empower and represent these people properly. And for that, you need the right context. Especially since they're largely talking about, you know, people who generally are marginalized, for example, women and children of color in more resource limited settings that are already marginalized. And then you're kind of removing their, like you said, their authority, their their agency over their own image. Yeah, it was it was a really good read. Yes. And what I also really like a lot is that the paper doesn't just end there. You know what they're trying to come up with and present to the community is a framework that can be used onwards on the future to address these problems, which I don't think that these problems that are very well highlighted in this paper come from a a point of malice you know if it happens that our image was wrongly used probably was because we didn't really know how to use them or the person that used them really put a lot of thought in it which might happen when you're working fast but these ethical considerations are important so they propose a framework that is based on ethical principles that can be used to decide okay should i use this photo or not or if i want to illustrate this particular part of this publication that i'm writing what kind of photo should I use? And they use these ethical principles. And for every ethical principles, they suggest considerations to be taken in account for that principle, justifications, or why should you actually justify using an image in that case? And then the examples of some things that work, some things that doesn't work. So people can have at least a, a reference when they are building up these documents and trying to use imagery in a way that suits the people and the document the best, right? Because what you want in the end is to communicate. So how mm-hmm. can we use these images in a way that takes people in account, don't leave their agency at, and don't add to this unconscious bias and view that we have of low resource settings? I do also like that they collaborated with a very experienced public health photographer mm-hmm. or global health photographer. They, they kind of reached out and tried to get more input from from somebody with a lot of experience with that, not just from uh, seeing these images, but also taking them themselves. Exactly. And I think that person, if I understood correctly, was involved in the early stages of kind of developing how to analyze mm-hmm. these images. It was also stated, of course, that they, even though there was not a standard criteria for this use, they did looked into X16 
published ethical codes from photographers without borders and the European NGO Confederation for Relief and Development and the US National Press Photographers Association, which are the people that are actually, you know, out there taking images that are used globally in you know journalism and so on. So what kind of ethical considerations are, are they already working with? Can we apply this to this global health situation that we're analyzing here? So that was very nice. It's a great article. It's open access. I think everybody should yes. should take a look, especially if you work in global health or public health. Or if you know anybody that works in global health, I, I really, yeah. I, I said that to you before. Even if you think you know what you're doing, read it and get a checkup maybe. <laughs> it's a nice read. And I think everyone working with global health one way or another should read this article because sometimes it's difficult to see outside of our own, you know, heads and how we think about something and sometimes we kind of have to double check ourselves as well what is it that we're thinking and how are we practicing our works and i think this was wonderful putting it out there and for people to just like maybe apply it in their own work yeah absolutely but with that i think we need to wrap up and i have to say this is going to be my last episode yes yeah i'm moving on to a new or i've Recently started a new position at the Swedish Public Health Agency, a temporary contract, um, but something that I'm looking forward to and working with. But yeah, I won't be able to do the podcast anymore then. So I will be handing this off. (laughs) And I just have to say thank you so much for everybody who's listened for the whole time I've been here. And a giant thank you to Ava. I think there's definitely no doubt that this is still going to be great, even without me, because Ava is pretty amazing. (laughs) So the podcast will hopefully continue and be just as good, but with somebody else taking my spot. Yes, we're going to try to substitute you, although that's a very hard thing to do because it's been great developing this podcast with you and you're leaving behind big shoes to fill. But I'm sure the person that comes (laughs) after is going to have their own touch, their own style, and they will able to develop themselves. I really would like to still keep this platform as a way that we can grow together. And I know we, you and I have grown so much from the first episode to this 45th episode. Jenny, 45 (laughs) episodes we've done. 45 regular episodes. Yes. We've done a lot of extra episodes too. No, it's been been a lot. Yes. It's been great. I really appreciate all the time in the hard times, all throughout a PhD, a kid, a lot of COVID, a pandemic. It's yeah. it's been quite a quite a ride. And I'm very, yeah. very grateful that I was able to start and develop this with you. And of course, I know that the people listening to us up to this point in this episode, they wish you the best in your new position. And I hope that you Mm -hmm. continue listening to us, Jenny. (laughs) Absolutely. I need to keep up up to date with my my AMR publications. It's going to be a different experience for you, probably, to just listen to the full and mounted episode when it's published. Yeah, it's going to be very different. And I don't have to hear my own voice. I've got to (laughs) say, got a lot more used to listening to my own voice through this. No, but I mean, I'm looking forward to hearing more about how it goes. And I'm just really happy to have had the time here. It's been an amazing experience. I think anyone who wants to do a podcast about anything they care about should absolutely do it. It's great. Look forward to seeing what happens. Yeah, it is just, if you set to do it, you can do it. That's basically what uh, making this podcast has uh, taught me. And for you listeners out there, I hope that you don't drop us because Jenny is leaving. (laughs) So I hope to see you back. Absolutely don't do that. (laughs) In our 46th episode in the month of March. And have a lovely, lovely month of February out there. Bye. Bye. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm.